You are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught to you in school and on corporate media. I'm your host, Esha. Today, we have Elijah Fanan here to talk to us about the history of Morocco. So, welcome, Elijah. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you for this opportunity uh, to talk about the history of Morocco with you. So, um... You are a PhD in anthropology, right? No, no, no. I'm not a PhD in anthropology. Um, I am actually, right now, I have finished a master's in um, anthropology. So you told me on TikTok that your parents are from Morocco? Yes, exactly. And you spent a lot of your childhood in Morocco? Yes. I spent around 12 years of my childhood in Morocco. Wow, that's a long time. So for people who don't know much about Morocco, where should we begin? I think Morocco overall has a huge history. It goes, uh, I mean, the recorded history goes back to 5,000 years. But um, I think the most important thing to talk about would be, in this case, the geography of Morocco. And because the geography is very interesting, because it explains how it is re- related to Europe, to Africa, and the Middle East at the same time. Okay, let's begin there. Go ahead. So Morocco is a North African country, a uh, Northwest African country to be precise. It has coasts on the Mediterranean Sea as well as the open Atlantic, which makes its geographical positionment very strategic to almost everything happening right now in the world, by the way. (laughs) It is also full of um, mountains. It has three main mountains, which is like the big, small and middle Atlas Mountains. Uh, Most of the geography is either mountains or desert, with some coastal places being very good for agriculture. Okay. And... um... So you said that it has a 5,000 history. So let's begin. When was the earliest recorded human life around Morocco, I guess, or civilization? Okay, so when it comes to earliest recorded human life, it goes back to uh, almost 200,000 years. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think there is there was a news call that one of my professors at university had worked on, and apparently it was dated with carbon dating all the way back to 300,000 years. So um, it was found in uh, a mountain, obviously, in the Atlas, which is very interesting, but we do not have that many information. What was interesting, though, with this found is that mitochondrial DNA showed huge relations between modern Norway and uh, <laughs> uh, modern Morocco because of uh, mitochondrial DNA. What is mitochondrial DNA? Um, it's a DNA that is found in the mitochondria, which is kind of a parasite inside the cell. It is often given to you through your mother, 100% to be precise, but um, it is often given you to through your mother. So the only way you can get it is that way and it is a very important uh, parasite i would call or a cell that is responsible for creating energy in uh, the human body so it, it's pre- it, there is a meme called um the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell ah and so in that dna you can figure out maternal lineage is that it 
Exactly. Yeah, I, I think the mitochondrial Eve was actually uh, done that way. The mitochondrial what? Eve. Uh, it's just a um, a study that basically tried to imagine how Eve would have looked like through mitochondrial uh, DNA. Interesting. Okay. So, um, when was I guess the first recorded history or the first sign of civilization inside of Morocco? Uh, so the first sign of civilization came around 814 BC. Wow. Um, with the um, Cartesian Empire, by the way. Who are the Cartesians? So the Cartesians is a civilization that came around um, North Africa near the uh, Mediterranean Sea. It's found also in Iberia. I don't know much about the Cartesians precisely, but... Um, this is like one of the first empires that ever existed. And then I guess the Western Roman Empire then invaded the area that we now know as Morocco. Is that it? Uh, yes. So at the time, Morocco was called the kingdom of uh, the Amazigh kingdom of Mauritania. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was established around 200 BC and it existed all the way to 44 AD. Mauritania was basically, some say a client state, some say it was like a satellite state for the Roman Empire. Uh, But the Roman Empire actually invaded the area and took control and considered like Morocco a Roman province. For how long, if I may ask? Um, It it was a long time. uh, uh, This was a a huge period. Uh, I think, if I'm not wrong, about 500 years. At the very least, yeah. Um, there was, by the way, the uh, third century crisis, uh, which actually limited Roman influence over Morocco because um, the Amazir, as people, the word Amazir means free people. They have always resisted oppression or conquest or colonization. Like uh, so, it wasn't actually a Roman rule because uh, of the uh, geography of Morocco, the Romans were not able to actually control all of the area. They couldn't deal with the Sahara Desert, for example. Mm -hmm. So uh, Berber tribes were contesting that all the way through uh, until the uh, 7th century, to be precise. Uh, So yeah, the Romans didn't have much influence, but um, to this day, we still have uh, some cities like Volubilis, also called um, in Arabic. Oh, I forgot the name in Arabic. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't matter. Yeah. Uh, so this city, we it was very Roman, very uh, like you, it was built on the same way that many Roman cities have been built, especially in Italy. So yeah. That's very interesting. And then when did Islam come to Morocco? So... Uh, Islam came to Morocco around the 7th century, going a bit to the 8th century with the uh, Umayyad Empire, which is the first Arab empire, the Arab Muslim empire that ever existed. At first, the uh, Umayyad, uh, because of the nature of the Amazir, the Amazir looked at this opportunity to finally free themselves from the Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. So they have worked together to push uh, the Romans. The Romans weren't able to fight mainly because uh, at this point of time, Arabs, because of their 
geography that is similar to Morocco. So they, they were very good at fighting in the desert. They used camels and so on. They knew how to move around. Um, so the Arabs at this point helped the Amazigh. So it was like the Roman were overwhelmed. So they had to go. And so this is what you call the period of the Islamic Golden Age? Uh, this is not the period of the Islamic Golden Age. It is the start of it. Uh, the Umayyad Empire wasn't exactly part of it. It was the first empire. It has lasted around 80 years. Um, mm-hmm. And because Arabs at the time never had a state, never had an empire, it was very difficult to rule a large area with very, like, very much diverse groups of people. Mm-hmm. So it was very hard to them, which, by the way, led to the fall of the Umayyad Empire. I think I should point out uh, why the Arab Empire has fallen. So in Islam, usually it is okay for you to to not be Muslim. And um, this empire never pushed people to become Muslim. However, you had to pay what we call the jizya, which is kind of a tax. Jizya. Yes. It is basically a tax. that you give to the government at the time, to the state, in exchange of protection. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you are considered part of these people. This is a very controversial subject between a lot of people. Some people consider it a bad thing. Some people do not consider it a bad thing. Um, and in the case of in North Africa, what happened is that the Amazigh became Muslim en masse. And Jizya was a huge source of money for the state. So when you become Muslim, you don't have to pay jizya anymore? Yes, but you instead have to pay zakat. What what is that? Zakat is a very different uh, kind of tax. It is everyone who can pay it and everyone... uh, You do not have to pay it anyways. Like You need to at least have what we call a, a term, which is almost a year with a money that you have never used. And in this case, you kind of give 2% of, your, uh, of that money to the, uh, the Bayt al-Mal al-Muslimin, which is basically the house of Muslims. And this money was used to make roads, to house the homeless, and so on. And uh, th- this is one of the reasons um, Islamic Golden Age started, because that money uh, was used for education, mostly, and research. Wow. Okay, well, speaking of education, one of my favorite scholars is from, I guess, what is now modern Morocco. We spoke a little bit about this, Ibn Khaldun. Do you want to talk a little bit about him? Uh, Ibn Khaldun is um, a Tunisian, I would say, because he was born in Tunis. So it's modern name Tunis, and I don't want the Tunisians to come up to my throat. <laughs> He's from Morocco. <laughs> Um, yes, Ibn Khaldun was uh, the father of modern sociology and economics. Uh, he wrote a lot of books. I have read his book, Muqaddimat Ibn Khaldun, which is like the introduction of Ibn Khaldun. Yeah, I love that book for two reasons. One is that he insults all the modern day historians of his time very yep. deeply. And yep. the second is that it is very informative. So he talks about how dynasties come in power and why they lose power. So exactly. can you talk a little bit about what he's, what his ideas are about power, I guess? Um, I haven't read much of Ibn Khaldun. I have read through uh, Muqaddimah Ibn Khaldun very quickly. Uh, yeah, I, um, 
I mostly read this because I've seen a lot of similarities between Marx's and Adam Smith's theory of labor and his work. Okay, can you talk about that a little bit? <laughs> uh, so uh, Ibn Khaldun were, came in a time where there was like social change. Uh, we were kind of starting to move to industrialization, where he noticed that people can actually work together and make more things. Before people used to be alone and would like say make their clay pot on their own and come to the market and sell. Is that it? Yeah, exactly. Uh, because there wasn't an industrial process, like a very organized process to make things. And he basically talked about how now that we have this method, it increases the value of labor and so on. We are able to make more of the pots for everyone, more clothing for everyone. And it's because people are working together. So um, how does that work? Uh, just so people can understand a little bit. Uh, in the way it works for Ibn Khaldun is that instead of making a door, I think the example he gave was a door. So instead of having one person make the nails for the door, the uh, the hand door like uh, to, to open the door and so on, you had have each different person making something. And because it's a process, they can learn to make it faster and then they can make more things faster. And then all these people come together and like they they give uh, the wood and so on, the nails and to make the door itself. And this is like starting, basically the process of industrialization that started in Europe. Ah, yes, because it's kind of like before I use Lenin's example, which is um, he uses clay pots or artisans. So let's use the example of clothes. So one person would like to spin the wheel on their own. But then when you had a big uh, factory spinner, you had to have many people feed in the yarn. But it in one hour, they, having many people feed in the yarn, they could like make 10 times as many yarn, as much yarn as one person using their spinning wheel, right? Exactly, yeah. That's the same. He, he took the example of the door. Like Ibn Khaldun took the example of the door, um, which is why I think his work was pretty much very influential on Adam Smith, uh, because Adam Smith's theory of labor value is very similar in my opinion. You say that there was... A, 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 okay, so how long did the Islamic empire last in Morocco? Um. Okay. There were many Islamic empires in Morocco. They were uh, successive, one after the other. Uh, the Umayyad empires, in, in the first one was the Umayyad empire, which went, which spawned in Morocco as well as uh, southern Iberia. However, this empire couldn't make it for the reasons I talked to about. But the more important reason, in my opinion, is that when the Amazigh has lived through heavy taxations from the Roman Empire. And like when the Muslims came on with an ideology at the time, a religion who uh, claimed that everyone was equal and that you do not have to pay such taxes if you're Muslim and so on, the Amazigh accepted that because it was better than what the Roman Empire has done. But because the Amazigh were actually um, believing in Islam very fast, the uh, resources, the money for the state was depleting. And it has raised, uh, so the Umayyad Empire, the sultans at the, at the time actually decided to keep the jizya even on Muslim Amazigh. And this is the mistake the Umayyad Empire, in my opinion, has done, is that it, was, it became 
what is known today as like an ethnostate. It was for the Arabs ah. and not the Muslims, mm-hmm. uh, which has separated two movements in, in the Umayyad Empire. There was one in like Middle East, Egypt, uh, all the way to Syria, so, stuff like that, who actually are called the Abbasid. The Abbasid called for more equality, no racism and so on. So they were able to make uh, a movement and destroy the Umayyad empire from that part. On, on the other side of the uh, the empire, which is the west side, uh, the Amazigh actually had the similar reactions to the Abbasids. And because of the uh, ethnic or racial discrimination that was happening, even though they were Muslim, the people started revolting again. And they have destroyed the Umayyad empire. They have kicked it. Uh, There was a saying that one of the emirs at the time has actually sworn that he would send a group of soldiers all the way from from Baghdad to Tunis, like a huge uh, kind of war mongering. However, he sent a group of people called Banu Hilal. These people have always clashed with everyone else in the Umayyad empire. They uh, they were like fierce warriors and so on. And in Arabia in general, there is a huge difference between the south and the north of Arabia. This area has always known uh, tribal conflicts. So when he sent uh, um, an army of around 40,000 soldiers, the soldiers started, by the way, clashing with each other. Wow. Which allowed the Amazigh to win in a guerrilla uh tactic warfare so uh, by the 11th century there was many successive Amazigh empires one of the most known is uh, Al-Muravid empire so what was special about it? Um, in the case of Al-Muravid empire it's, it's very interesting uh, because it was the rise of um, what we would call today fundamental Islam so what what do you mean by fundamental islam and what was um so what did they change from the umayyad empire so the umayyad empire towards the end kind of became a state in contradictions so they wanted to push through islam all the way by keeping some kind of tolerance at the time this period with this contradiction itself was not going to survive in in an empire made by people that never had empires so what happened is that the abbasid uh on the uh east of the empire were like no we're going full on to separate religion from the state this was not official though but they actually decided to separate religion from the state on the other hand um because of the racial injustice that happened because of the jizya in um, that the Umayyad imposed on the um, Amazigh, they were like, no, this is not true Islam, so we should go back to actually true Islam. And again, this the Al-Muravid empire was kind of, I would say, less tolerant society than the Umayyad, even though the Umayyad is also considered less tolerant than its Abbasid counterpart. So it was kind of a mixture. So that contradiction itself of the Umayyad kind of split between the west side of the empire and the east side of uh, the empire. And so um, the Al-Muravid empire, how, okay, how long did it last and when did it fall and how did it fall? Okay. Um, so there was a successive 
uh, Amazigh empires, uh, most of them spawned around 200 years or between 100 and 200 years to be precise. Um, so by the 11th century, there was like the first Almoravid empire. They established a capital city of Mara, which is now a famous market city, Marrakesh, right? Um, was it the Almoravid? Because I, when I was researching that, I got so many capital cities. I could give you. Oh, never mind. I could be wrong. No, it's okay. I'm sorry. I was just. Uh, I was. I'm wrong. You're okay. So. Um, yes, so, it was Marrakesh. Okay, that's a big market city today, right? Um, it is a big touristic city today, rather than a market. Touristic city. city sorry. Yeah, it is a huge touristic city. Uh, it's known as the Red City of Morocco. Why is it called the Red City? Because if you would go to Marrakesh, every building is uh, actually in red. Okay, because in India, we have a city called Jaipur. It's called the Pink City because of exactly this reason. <laughs> okay. Well, it's more of a pink as well in Marrakesh, but it's it, it, we just take the red name. Ah, interesting. And so how did they end up falling? Um, they ended up falling for the exact same reason as the Umayyad. There was a new sect of Islam because the Umayyad, when it has fallen, it, it, it didn't go away from southern Iberia. I think it stayed for a while in southern Arab, uh, Iberia and it was like a hub for scientific research like Baghdad. So there were some Amazigh who went to study in um, the Umayyad and basically they had new sect of Islam again and then they were like, we have actually went uh, away from the path of God, so we need to go back. Which is very interesting because it is uh, the the argument they have always gave is that the current empire has a lot of luxuries and like the kings today are actually um, what we call dalimin, which is like oppressors and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, which is very interesting because uh, when they say luxury, uh, there was a lot of luxury. All of these empires actually became. When they become richer, they actually invest more in mosques. Ah! And mosques are a, a mosques are actually a public place where education happens. Mm-hmm. So I, I find this very interesting because there was more education, there was more art, and so on in mosques. And the different sects of Islam actually just um, spread around the area and so on. So who came after the Al-Mahavid Empire? Maravid, sorry. Moravid, after the Al-Muravid Empire, uh, because it was kind of a divided between... Um, okay, so during the Al-Muravid Empire, there was still some tribal issues uh, between the Amazigh. So, for example, there, there is a, a, a tribe near Casablanca where they have never actually believed in Islam until the Al-Muhad Empire came on. They, they kind of were independent then uh, from the Al-Muravid Empire. So because of this division and the losses against uh, the, uh, the Spanish in the 13th century, mm-hmm. um, the Al-Muhad rose to power and claiming that they can actually unionize again Morocco and be again a power that they were before, ah. referring again to the Umayyad Empire. Uh-huh. Al-Muhad Empire was actually, uh, when, when it has risen, it was actually the first caliphate that was not Arab. It was like the first 
person that claimed themselves as Arabs. Uh, no, as a Khalifa, but they were not Arabs. Interesting. Yeah, yeah they were Amazigh. Amazigh. And that was the language they spoke? Uh, no, by this time, Amazigh uh, was only spoken in places where education was not accessible. Ah, but everywhere else, which language did they speak? Uh, Arabic. I see. Okay. Yeah. And so, okay, so they spoke in the Arabic language, but they were not ethnically Arab. Exactly. Um, that's why, um, you know, in um, in anthropology or like linguistically speaking, the term Arab does not refer to someone who is ethnically Arab. Mm-hmm. Uh, it refers to someone who actually speaks Arabic. So, for example, if you would learn Arabic and... Um, and like be fluent at it, we will consider you an Arab, linguistically speaking. Which, but like when it comes to people, it's very different in that case. It was kind of the Romans, so they uh, they considered any everyone that didn't speak uh, Roman at the time was not a Roman, and so on. So, how long did the Almohad Empire last, and how did they fall? Um, okay, so in the 13th century, the country saw massive immigration from the tribe I talked about earlier called Banu Hilal. Banu Hilal, okay. And they came from the east? Uh, they came from base, so, uh, southern Saudi Arabia. Okay, so from a far, far east of Morocco, okay. Yeah, uh, it was not Morocco at the time. It was a different uh, empire, country. What was it called? Um, well, it was called Al-Muhad. Al-Muhad, okay. So, yeah. so, so, okay. So in the kingdom of Al-Muhad, um, they started getting many people from what is now the Arabian Peninsula coming over. Exactly. Yeah. They, they saw mass immigration because Al-Muhad kind of also had became a hub for science and research. Again, the period from the fall to the Umayyad all the way to when the current dynasty took, takes power is known as the Islamic Golden Age. Ah. And how long does that period last? Uh, so around the 700 uh, AD all the way to uh, 1500s. So it's a huge period. It's 800 years. Wow. Okay. So what were you said there was a lot of science. What were some of the advances in science that people may not know about during this time? Um, okay. There is different kind of uh, organizations that were created. Uh, for example, the first university in the world was in Morocco by Moroccan or Tunisian. Uh, depends whether you're from, like Moroccans claim her, uh, Tunisians claim her as well. Uh, Fatima Al-Fihri, it created the, um, it, it was at first a mosque, but again, mosques at the time were also schools uh, for research and so on. It's called uh, Jamiat Al-Qarawiyin, so Al-Qarawiyin uh, University. It is still working today. It is uh, in Fas, around 846. Wow. So it was in the city of Fez around 800. So they just established the first university. Like, what was, who went to this university and what w- was taught there? Okay, so Fatima Al-Fihri, um, okay, Al-Fihri refers to the fact uh, it she comes from a family that was actually very rich at the time in the uh, Arabian Peninsula. Mm-hmm. Um, so she was rich, obviously. She, uh, her dad died. He gave her inheritance. And with that inheritance, she gifted it to the people. So she built the Al-Qarawin Mosque and Al-Qarawin University. So what did they... 
I guess I'm trying to figure out what did they teach in this university or what made it special? So the education system at the time was that uh, kids would go to the mosque first and then in the mosque they would learn the Quran mm -hmm. and learn how to write and how to uh, read. For example, Ibn Khaldun was someone who actually learned uh, the entire Quran by heart at the age of 10. Wow, that's amazing. Okay. Yeah. Uh, all scholars at the, time, uh, at the time kind of learned the Quran and then they had time to go both from uh, observing through nature, observing through scientific experiments and so on. And from the Quran, they would actually make conclusions. So, yes, the Quran played a very good uh, role at the time at like pushing people to educate themselves. Ah, so it was like the early scientific method. They would collect observations from what they saw in nature and try to see if there was a rule or something like that. Exactly, yeah. So when did European colonization start in Morocco? Um, European colonization started officially in 1904. Okay, but unofficially, it seems like it started a few hundred years earlier, right? Uh. Almost a hundred years earlier, because the dynasty had to survive, like the Alawid dynasty, like the dynasty that we have today. How did the dynasty that is in Morocco today, like you said, they came to power in the 1500s. So that's already almost 500 years. So what did they do? How did they survive so long? Um, so what happened with the massive immigration from Banu Hilad that I talked about, there was two successive sorry, dynasties um, after the 14th century. The first one was the Sadiin and the second one was the Alawiin. Both of these dynasties actually claim it to be from the prophet Muhammad. Direct descendants. Yeah. They, I mean, the, the current king is a direct descendant of the uh, prophets of Islam. They were mis mostly able to keep power through that way. Like, uh, this is where religion was used, in my opinion, against the people. This is the end, basically, of the Islamic Golden Age. Uh, so they used this, uh, the, the claims that basically they are, I wouldn't say they are divine, they would never say so, but um, people saw them as direct descendants of the Prophet, so they saw them as good people, because everyone in the Muslim world considered Muhammad a very good person. And like this idea at the time that because they are descendant from the prophet, they must be good people. I see. And so that's how they maintained power is through controlling the religion. Exactly. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about what happened? So they assumed power in the 15th or 16th century or 17th? Uh, 1500s. Uh, no, 1600s, 1600s. Okay, so, so I'm on 1600. So that's when in Spain they were, quote unquote, like starting to colonize the Americas. And um, I guess in south of Morocco, there were a lot of European invasions for slave trade. How did Morocco protect themselves against both British, French, and Spanish people who are trying to kind of... So they were, in easier words, I think they were basically um, paying to stay alive. Oh, it's like it, it. It was like tributes. It, it was the same way like the Roman Empire would leave like a proto state or a satellite state, and then they would ask them to pay the money so they do not con uh, concur them. 
So this is the way the Alawid dynasty actually prayed uh, all sides, and they still pl- play all sides in the global world to keep the power in their lineage. So, um, so basically, they were, and the Ottoman Empire was also coming up around this time. Uh, what was their relationship with the Ottoman Empire? It was a hate relationship with the Ottoman Empire. So they would would they war with them, or was it just kind of a, a hostile relationship? Um, there were many times where the Ottoman Empire has actually tried to invade Morocco and take it under and seize it under its control, but it has failed multiple times. It has never succeeded to do that uh, with the Saadine dynasty as well as the Alawid dynasty. And do you have any theories about why? So, first of all, the Ottoman Empire, as much as they have tried to um to show it as this great empire when I was in school in Morocco, in the end, they used actually methods to suppress identity. So they forced what we call Turkmenization. What does that mean? Uh, It's basically deleting the Arabic language from the area and changing it to Turkish. The Ottoman Empire was also very hostile towards education. They considered like um, when when printing, for example, was... uh, was discovered, they considered something that would destroy the Quran, so they banned printing, so people were able to read less than they could have. It was, an, well, as all empires, they were all kind of, I would say racist, but yeah, it, it was kind of a racist state that they didn't want, the Amazigh never wanted, although they were in Algeria, so yeah. So they came very close, but they never conquered the area that is now known as Morocco, right? Exactly, yeah. And so, interesting, I did not know that they tried to convert the Arabic language to only Turkish language towards the end. It's very interesting. When you said how Morocco was able to deal with like all these foreign powers and keep the uh, dynasty alive, it's interesting, but Morocco had a huge piracy system. Basically, they were pirates. We had a lot of pirates throughout history. We have one big pirate. Um, she's called Al-Hurra, which means the free woman. Al-Hurra. Okay. Uh, she's a female pirate. Okay. This is really cool. Tell us more about her. I would love to know. Um, so she is the daughter of uh, some uh, sultan at the time. And uh, she was kicked from Spain, uh, you know, when a lot of uh, Muslims and Jews actually uh immigrated to Morocco to flee the Spanish Inquisition, uh, Spanish Reconquista. And this was in 1400s or 1500s? Uh, this was in the fifth, uh, this, that was in the 14, the end of the 1400s. Ah, okay. So it was exactly coinciding with Spain's colonization of the New World, right? Exactly, yeah. In the beginning of the 1500s, her husband, I think, was killed and she swore to take revenge for him. Wow. So she made a fleet of pirates in the area. Uh, a fleet as in um, many, it's like almost like a navy of pirates? Exactly, yeah. Okay, so uh, tell us more. There isn't much information about Al-Hurra aside from Arabic poetry. Most of modern or like Islamic golden age history, we can get it from uh, Arabic poetry. Okay, tell us, what does the poetry say about her? Uh, she was a fierce woman. Uh, everyone, uh, like everyone, respected her, and like the enemies 
were fearing her. Like a, lo- a lot of like uh, Italian and Spanish pirates were actually scared of Alhura. She <laughs> she was something else. She she had her own empire in water. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So then they would go. Okay. So so they were on the sea, and if they saw like a Spanish or French ship, they would just uh, I guess go rob it. Exactly. That's what they would do. And this uh, this is something that Morocco has done for centuries. I approve of robbing colonizers. I like because I mean the word. You know how the word loot is the very first word from Hindi to English because the British kept on robbing us. So yeah, this is very cool. <laughs> to get a little bit of revenge for all the looting they did. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, they were actually uh, doing that a lot. Again, as, as good as this sound, Morocco also participated in some horrible things throughout history. It's uh, especially the pirates. They were actually helping the slave trade and so on. How did they do that? So what they cared about mostly is making money and bringing it back to Morocco. Mm-hmm. So, like, this was the entire business of Morocco, stealing from whoever stole and then bring it back. Uh, Morocco, again, had to survive against colonization. So they actually made uh, some treaties to allow slave traders to go through. Ah, so the idea was that if there was a Spanish or French or like who did, did they made treaties with Spanish, French? Did they make any with the English? They did uh, do with England. They even did with the United States, as Morocco is the first country to recognize uh, the independence of the U.S. Really? Um, In 1777. Okay, what was this treaty that they did with the U.S.? It's a friendship treaty. It is still, uh, it's still going on to this day. The treaty was that you are allowed to e- exchange goods with the rest of the world, and like our pirates won't touch you. <laughs> Ah, yeah. So, okay. So, how did that help the slave trade? Again, uh, the U.S. was pretty much participating in it a lot. And uh, if they, if the pirates were not attacking U.S. ships or British ships, it was probably filled with slaves and uh, ah, resources from Africa. Got it. So, okay. So, the, so basically, they gave them safe passage and is it was like a toll like was it like you give us some money and we'll give you safe pass like how did it work oh okay so everyone hated the uk at the time so no it was a friendship pact like we're not gonna hurt you 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 push the uk away from that area and we we we, we're not gonna ask something from you of course there was something in exchange so the u.s kept the uk navy away in exchange the u.s got safe passage from moroccan pirates is that correct uh, kind of, yeah. I guess I'm trying to understand what each side got in this treaty. Uh, you know, at the time, the U.S. wanted recognition from states. The Alawite dynasty was actually uh, a strong state in itself. Like it, it was always rich through the piracy and so on. So the recognition from a soft power such in Morocco at the time was already something big for the U.S. On the other hand, for Morocco, I think. It, they saw it as weakening the um, as weakening the British Empire. As industrialization was happening in Europe, Northwest Africa was increasingly prized for colonization. Ah, like, Morocco was gonna be colonized anyway. They knew that the the, the dynasty knew that itself. So they had to play around and uh, try to keep uh, their rule over the country.
All right, our 2023 goal, just like Saida, is much booty and many prisoners. So go to historically.substack.com and subscribe today. If we get 20 new subscriptions by the end of the month, we're going to rage Gibraltar. Also, check us out on YouTube and Twitch with Late Nights with Lennon. Get commentary and trolling from 100 years ago by the absolute master of the form and see how little has changed. It is what is to be done. So this is the late 1700s. Like, what happened in the 1800s? Like, how did Morocco stay afloat in the 1800s when colonization of Africa was moving at a very fast rate? I would say pretty much uh, the same way. They would ask uh, Spain for protection. They would ask France for protection. They would play both sides to keep that. Uh, France wanted Morocco to protect its colony, Algeria. Uh, ah. It really wanted it. So, um, so, hold on. When did Algeria become a colony of France? Um, they were colonized for 136 uh, years, so around the early 1800s. I see. And then, um, so the idea was that Morocco would stop rebellions inside of Algeria? Um, exactly. Um, you know, Morocco was never a colonized country on paper. It was always a protectorate, so it kind of kept its in, uh, independence in some ways, especially in the school system and so on. So people from Algeria would like immigrate to Morocco to educate themselves. And these people, when they went back to Algeria, they are the ones who actually pushed for the independence of Algeria. That's very interesting. So I guess in 1912, it's obvious it's right before World War One. And basically, World War One is an imperial war where France, Britain, and the U.S. were trying to fight for their colonies, and Germany were new powers, so they wanted new colonies, right? So that was the basic fight in World War One. Exactly. Yeah, I, I think the Morocco also played um, a role in World War One um, because no, not Morocco itself, but. The fact that the UK recognized French influence over Morocco is kind of something that angered the German Empire. Why? I haven't looked into this, but like at the time, you know how in 1905 they actually the Ottoman Empire did, and European powers met and divided Africa between themselves. I don't know about it. Can you tell, talk to us a little bit about it? I, I'm sure none of our, very few of our listeners also know about this. So basically, uh, European powers, uh, powers in 1904-1905, they made a treaty and they kind of separated Africa between themselves. Okay, so the Ottoman Empire got North Africa and Europeans got the rest of that? Was that how it worked? Or the how? Ottoman Empire got nothing. It was the Europeans who got everything. So how... Uh, how did that happen? Uh, the um, the Ottoman Empire at the time was known as the ill man, the person that was going to die. Everyone knows it was the end of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, it hadn't, it hasn't had influence as much as it did before. No one, I, I mean, not no one, but the European powers wouldn't care less about what the Ottoman Empire wanted at the time. So the Europeans divided the uh, Africa between themselves, North Africa especially, although colonization at that time already happened, but I, I, I think they were kind of trying to find a mutual agreement because the Ottoman Empire uh, wanted more land from Africa, but they ended up losing land. Interesting. Okay, so how how was North Africa divided amongst the Europeans? So France would get uh, Algeria, Tunisia, 
some parts of Morocco, the metro, the, the area known as like Metropole of Morocco. Today they would get that. Spain would get north, the highest mode north of Morocco, and like the southern part of Morocco, which is known today as the Western Sahara. And then Italy would get Libya, Britain would get Egypt, and so on. This is about North Africa. Ah, okay, that makes sense. So that's happened in 1905. And so then what happened in 1912? So the uh, 1912, there was a treaty, uh, the Treaty of Fez actually made Morocco a protectorate of France. This was the day it was officialized as Morocco would, uh, like, France would protect the, the, the king at the time and France basically took everything from Morocco at this point of time, which actually triggered a lot of riots in face. Um, while Spain continued operations in its, like, uh, coastal area, most north top of uh, Morocco. Okay, so Spain got a part of... So um, you, you, you talk... Uh, so there's two questions that are obvious with this one. Okay, so you said it triggered a lot of riots in Fez. And um, can you talk a little bit about this and what happened during this time? And the second one is that um, we all know that in Spain, it was soon it, they began a period of a lot of instability. Uh, and there was a Spanish Republic that was established. And I guess for some, there was even the anarchist, I don't know, whatever you want to call that. Um, and um, a lot of people seem to think that the anarchist federation's indifference towards colonization in Morocco allowed Franco to come in and invade through Morocco. So can you talk a little bit about this? So at, at that time of history, Fez was the capital of Morocco. It's this period of time is known as the bloody days of uh, Fez. Uh, the French soldiers and Spanish soldiers actually used a lot of violence against the protesters. The people of Fez have seen that the treaty the king, the Sultan Abd al-Hafid at the time made uh, with France for making uh, France uh, the Morocco protectorate of France. They they have seen this as a betrayal. And then they, he also changed, um, at, at this uh, time, he also changed the capital from Fez to Rabat to protect, to ensure his safety. Ah, okay. Yeah. So then Spanish and French soldiers came to put down the rebellion in Fez? Yeah. Uh, also Moroccan uh, soldiers. Because, again, it was the king and the sultans protecting themselves, not actually the people whatever like the treaties that happened it was mostly in the interests of the ruling class it was not in the interests of the people so can you tell you also mentioned in the email how about the strong independence movement that came out of the city of reef can you talk a little bit about that uh so reef uh, is not a city it's an area which is basically the mountains the north mountains of morocco and basically the mountains i would say this area has been mostly amazigh throughout its history uh, so after the independence uh, they didn't feel independent because they never understood why there was french and spanish soldiers still around like we we got our independence why what are these guys doing here so they have actually started to call for their independence. They wanted to make their own republic. They have actually tried to, well, 
it is thought that they have tried to kill the king to make a, a coup d'etat, basically. Um, this has been met with a lot of oppression from Hassan II, which is the father of the current king. I, I have seen um, a documentary about this and the stories I have talking about how the soldiers um, or the Mahzen at the time, they were called, were actually raping children, raping men and women alike, killing them all because for whatever reason is that because they are in a part of the reef that happened to have some movements against the, the king. This is a period of high political fragmentation. So in I will go back a bit in time. So in 1943, uh, the Istiqlal Party was founded. The Istiqlal Party is the independence party of Morocco. They are mostly the party that has provided most of the leadership of the independence movement. However, when Morocco got into independence, it, it got divided. The leadership that the Istiqlal Party had was Marxist or Marxist-Leninist uh, leadership like Mehdi bin Barka. Uh, when you Google Mehdi bin Barka, he is not considered a Marxist-Leninist. He's considered a nationalist, although a lot of his writings are actually Marxist. He self-identified as a Marxist. Um, so what was his philosophy of what should happen to Morocco? He wanted revolutionary sl- struggle. Although there were many other who actually, uh, for me, were much more influential than uh, Ben Barka himself. Can you talk a little bit about them? Yes, of course. Uh, in the case of Ben Barka, there is rumors that he was a spy for Yugoslavia at the time. So um, Mehdi Ben Barka is very different. He was very. He was part of the elite that got the chance to educate themselves in Paris University and so on. He was a math... Uh, he, I think he had a PhD in math. or well, he, he at least studied mathematics in Paris universities. Other very influential uh, Marxist figures in Morocco were Abraham Serfati, Abraham Serfati, which was a Jew um, who wrote a book called... Le Maroc du Noir au Gris, which means Morocco from black to gray. What does that mean? What, is, what does he mean by black to gray? So when we got independence, people actually thought that our we had a chance to increase our quality of living, to 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 have more freedom and security, democracy, and so on. But that was not the case. So he, he compared to the times of um, Hassan II as being gray. Yes, it is better than um, than colonization, but it is still as bad. That's why he used, yeah. So colonization was supposed to be the black period, and this is gray, but you want daylight, is what he's trying to say? Exactly, yeah. Uh, this book is um, actually interesting because... I knew it existed. I have read some chapters of it, but I was looking into some research uh, papers recently uh, for this interview. And there was one research that was very interesting. It considered this book a theory for Moroccan uh, revolution, like a Marxist theory. However, it is 
not. When you read it the first time, it is an autobiography. Um, Braham Serfati was talking about the Marxist-Leninist movement, what happened in jail, what happened, uh, the oppression that he lived through as a Moroccan Jew and so on. Uh, but this research paper argued that this is actually theory. It's just that we need to interpret it in a Marxist lens to understand it. And what would the Marxist-Leninist interpretation from this research paper, like what did they posit? Uh, so it was um, mainly um, a critique to the movement because the movement started in... Uh, there was two main dates that actually sparked the movement that were pushed the people to say, okay, this is not working. We need something else. Just after colonization, there, there was a period of pan-Arabism, uh, decolonization. There was a period of pan-Arabism, which was an ideology trying to unite the Arab world under one identity, being Arab, which was never going to happen. Uh, there is a lot of identities in the Middle East and North Africa. You cannot just unite them and make these people delete their identities just because you you think that this is the way that a strong Arab word will exist. So the first date is 23rd March uh, 1965. There was a student's uprising in Casablanca as a reaction to recent announcements from the Ministry of Education. So the Ministry of Education has decided that in order to go to school, you will have to pay um, 10 dirhams which is around $1. But at the time, we didn't use dirhams as a currency. Uh, people still use the franc, the Moroccan franc, which is around a 1,000 Moroccan franc. That was a lot of money uh, for Moroccans at the time. The other announcement they did is that if you fail twice uh, in the same um, year, for example, if you're like a 12th, uh, 12th grade in high school, you would be banned from getting educated. That's crazy. Yeah. Uh, the problem with that is that a lot of people were migrating to cities. A lot of people needed, couldn't even read or write. It was expected for them to actually fail. Again, the, the Moroccan education system was, gonna to, was going to be an elitist system for those who were born in cities or for those rich enough to afford education during the French colonization. Uh, this is the first day. There was this uprising uh, actually came from students first. The second date is the defeat of the Arab world against, uh, nine, uh, against Israel in 1967. Uh, this has shown that no, pan-Arabism doesn't work. If we want to liberate Palestine, this is not the way. And this created a new journal in Morocco called Sufr, which means uh, breathing, breath. Uh-huh. Um, it's, um, it is a Marxist-Leninist journal where everyone could write on it. And it was mainly students writing theory about, um, writing about Lenin, writing about Marx, Mao, and so on. And what was their philosophy? Uh, so this is the birth of the Marxist-Leninist movement. This was the very beginning with the 1968 student movement uprising in Paris as well, and so on. The, the relationship, even though this is after colonization, but like the relationship between what was happening in France and what was happening in Morocco was very close. People related to each other. Okay, um, quick thing. Can we just move, move back to World War II? Because I want to, people to know about something very special that happened in Morocco 
during Vichy France. Um, let me just, uh, so in France, they surrendered very quickly for lack of a, um, I don't know what to say. They surrendered very quickly for lack of a better word. So we know that over 1 million French uh, citizens volunteered to fight on Hitler's side to do Barbarossa, which was the invasion out east. What did Sultan Mohammed say when the Vichy government asked him to turn in the Jews? He refused. He utterly refused to uh, give the Jews to Nazi Germany. Uh, this is, by the way, one of the reasons why a lot of Moroccan Jews stayed in Morocco, even though there was an, an oppression after the establishment of the state of Israel. Because they feel like Morocco is their home. Morocco is... Um, it is. <laughs> it's a country that protected them from uh, Nazi Germany, even though they, even though Morocco didn't have any power. You see, it's, uh, it, it is very interesting. Braham Serfati was one of these people, for example. Um, he was utterly against uh, the establishing of um, Israel as a state. He was anti-Zionist and so on. Yeah, I, I mean, every, to me, of course, every decent person should be against establishing Israel as a state because exactly. it is yeah. a very bloody state. And I just learned some horrible, like I just um, watched this interview with this guy who used to be a settler, which we can provide a link to, but he was telling us about how there are two legal systems. For Palestinians, they get sent to military court, but for Israelis, they get... So if an Israeli throws a rock at a Palestinian and it hits him on the head, the Israeli goes to civilian court. But if a Palestinian throws a rock and it hits an Israeli on the head that Palestinian goes to military court and the punishment in military court is much harder than the one in civilian court. Yeah, this is what's currently... I mean, Israel is an apartheid state that shouldn't exist in my own opinion, but yeah. yeah. I mean, this is an example of like how there's two systems depending on your ethnicity. So it is very... Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So um, that's very interesting. Okay, so back to 1967. So then the birth of the Marxist-Leninist movement. Uh so they had opened a gen journal and what did they start? What did they want to, what did they advocate for, I guess? Uh, so they were advocating for the working class, the uh, people, they, they were openly advocating in a way, in a very artistic way, because this movement was led by artists. Uh, it was led by artists and like uh, educated people in general, but they were advocating in a very artistic way for the working class to unite against them. My uncle was living during those times. Uh, my mom t tells me if your uncle was still alive, uh, he would be very proud of you um, uh, when it comes to uh, my political views. So they were advocating for that. Uh, the movement was also influenced heavily uh, by the uh, cultural revolution happening in China. How did that, so what was the Chinese, I guess, the cultural revolution influence? So the at the time, there was already a, a, Mor a Moroccan Communist Party. But the Moroccan Communist Party was heavily uh, working with the Soviet Union, which Marxists in Morocco decided that, no, the Soviet Union has actually strayed away from the Marxist-Leninist path. But again, this is in the 60s, uh, well, in the late 60s, so they are right. Uh, the, the, the way the Soviet Union was dealing with uh, 
or working with the Moroccan Communist Party was not something they were hoping for. They considered them reformists. They uh, so a lot of critiques to the Communist Party of Morocco was actually also a critique to the Soviet Union. So again, with this uh, with this uh, journal, they were able to. Uh, arm the working class, I would say, with uh, theory and, like, revolutionary theory. Mm-hmm. Um, so, at this point, the Communist Party of Morocco actually got divided or dispatched, I would say. One reason was that the Moroccan government kind of cracked down on it. The other reason was that the students, who were the main base of the Moroccan Communist Party, actually moved away from that party. They called that party a reformist party, which will change actually the name of the Party of Socialism and Liberation, which was, again, cracked down upon by the government, uh, which has let the movement work in the shadows. I see. And it, does it still exist? So, well, I talked to a person uh, about this who lived through the years of lead, uh, who was... Um, what is the years of lead for people who have not listened to our podcast about Operation Gladio? <laughs> <laughs> the years of lead was uh, actually a period of time during the Hassan uh, II's rule of Morocco. Uh, it started in the very late uh, uh, 1950s, all the way to the death of... Um, the king. Uh, it was uh, a time where there was heavy oppression on the people. The oppression of the reef, the oppression of the Marxist-Leninist movement, which was mainly in cities. So, the person's opinion is that currently students are not interested. They show a uh, a kind of political apathy. Again, they show this political apathy because the people who lived through the years of lead always tell them, get away from politics. You don't need to do something. Get away from that. You will just kill yourself. Even though the years of lead has ended. Uh, so there is this trauma. The years of lead are a trauma for the Moroccan people. Even though, in my opinion, the situation is so much better. We have, um, like, the years of lead, like the human rights violations uh, during the years of lead, around 10,000 people were put in prison and so on. The government actually recognized its mistake and it has a uh, organization to prevent that from happening again. But again, it's a state-owned... What did they do? So they researched uh, the truth about what was happening. It's I think it's called like the... Uh, the organi- uh, not the organization, the Assembly of the Truth. So they researched what, what was happening under Hassan II's rule. They basically apologized for what was happening to make sure that it's not it was not going to happen again. But again, it is a state organization. I think when when they say 10,000 people, even though this number is already actually very big, uh, I think it's much more. Uh, The people who have lived through the area, I mean, it just happens that when talking to my mom or my grandma or my aunts and uh, uncles, they would talk about how the army would go on the streets and kill people sometimes, um, and so on. I, I think the number is much bigger, uh, personally. So we, we went into this to uh, because I explained how traumatizing the experience was for the Moroccan population, the Moroccan working class. 
so this is why students are today are kind of not very much interested in um, politics. There is a huge political apathy. What most people care about is leaving Morocco right now because of their material conditions. Uh, you would ask anyone in Morocco and like, oh, I just want to leave this place. So the there were three main organizations or structures of the Marxist-Leninist movement. It, uh, it was a party called The Way Forward, Ilal Amam, another party called 23rd of March, and a third one was called uh, To Serve the People. These parties had to work in, under, in the shadows. They couldn't ever be public because the moment they were, the government was going to crack down upon them. This is one of the reasons, by the way, there isn't much of the... Uh, I mean, M Moroccan women played a huge role, but these meetings, like Amam's meetings, were actually happening during the night. So in the culture in Morocco, a girl shouldn't be out at night and so on. So it would, they didn't... Like, even though there is a lot, currently there is, um, there is a union, actually, of socialists in Morocco, basically. It's taken socialists, Marxist-Leninists, and uh, other parties that, that lean to the left, not necessarily Marxist uh, parties. And she's the head of that. She's called Nabila Munib. She's the head of this uh, new federation of United Socialist Movement. Ah, and so um, what are they fighting for or working towards? Um. First of all, they're working towards more democracy. If you know about the Arab Spring, you would also know that Morocco also had an uprising during the Arab Spring in the 20th of February. So it was not as bad as the rest of the world. It was big. However, uh, the king reacted directly to the protest. There was one main protest uh, on the 11th of February. And what did he do? Uh, he announced a change in the constitution. So how did the constitution change? That was quick. Yeah, that was very quick. And um, the constitution change is that it gave more power to the parliament, something that they didn't have before. So right now, uh, we would call Morocco a semi-democratic country. It's a mixed regime. Something like a parliamentary democracy, maybe? Uh, more like a parliamentary monarchy. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, again, even though you can vote for a party, you can vote for representatives, uh, nearly half of the, uh, of the parliament is chosen handpicked by the king. I see. Okay. So it's, uh, okay. So it's a semi-democracy. Okay. So. Yeah. So it's semi. Yeah. So how has the economic situation changed since the Arab Spring? And what is this party working towards in the future? So um, the economic situation has have been improving a lot. It is not necessarily good. There is way less um, poverty, more educated people and so on. But I don't think this has to do anything with the current the change in the government. This is a very controversial opinion I have, but it has way more to do with Chinese investment in Morocco. Okay, do tell us a little bit about it. I don't know anything about the Chinese investment in Morocco. So China have been actually, since the 70s, heavily investing in African countries. 
Morocco is one of those countries. And is it they part have, of the Belt and Road Initiative or is this before the Belt and Road Initiative? This is before the Belt and Road uh, Initiative, yeah. So China have heavily invested in our public transport system, in our healthcare system, in our education system and so on. Around five years ago when I was in Morocco, there wasn't a functional public transport system. But today I would go to Casablanca, for example, and they actually have a functional public transport. Well, do they have metros or buses or trams? What do they have? Uh, we have trams. Uh, in, in Casablanca, we have trams and buses. Interesting. Okay. So that's a lot of good infrastructure. So um, Exactly. So, okay. So how, did, how has this influenced the policy? I guess I'm trying to understand. You said a lot of the change in the economy is due to the Chinese investment. So can you talk a little bit about how, how this has changed it? Uh, because China is becoming a new world superpower, their loans are actually very different than IMF loans or like loans from the European Union. Okay, so we definitely covered a lot about the IMF loans. So we know about this, but we're not very familiar with how the Chinese loans work. So talk a little bit about that. So Chinese, um, I'm I'm not very educated. Uh, on that, so I will just give a small overview of what I have. Of yeah, so Chinese loans work in a way that the Chinese government comes to you and propose a project that is obviously in the interest, also in the interest of China. But they are they have three types of loans, and the loans that go to Africa are mostly interest-free or like very and even if they have an interest they are actually they have actually a very small interest so this encourages a lot of countries developing countries to take loans from china and this is mainly because the imf loans are very oppressive we've had at least 10 episodes about the imf so we'll put a link to all of them go ahead (laughs) (laughs) so because the loans from the imf are very oppressive uh governments actually need to keep power in Africa because Africa is very, I think it is very fragmented politically. And in order for the governments to keep their power, they have to deliver something. And the way for them to deliver something is through Chinese loans because they can make infrastructures, they can make uh, new hospitals, they can make stuff like this. And uh, I mean, there, uh, I think in Tanja, uh, Tangier, which is a city in North Morocco, um, um, China is investing in a new tech city. What does that mean? It's, uh, an, it's an industrial complex, basically. Ah, like factories? Factories, and there is a, there is probably also a, um, a livable area, that, like housing and stuff like that. But yes, China is heavily investing on that. I think they have, uh, if I'm not wrong on the number, it's around $2 billion that they have invested on it. Yeah. That's really nice. Uh, So I think this is one of the reasons Morocco is actually having a change, uh, a a positive change in the material conditions of its people. It is not because uh, the government is doing what its people need. The government is afraid to lose power, so they need it to deliver. I always say this, but a good dictator is a dictator that gives their people something so they do not revolt against him. That's Every government, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it, it has, in my opinion, it has more to do with China, uh, Chinese investment, than it has to do with uh, the new government and so on. So what 
exactly is the situation? What is going on? What is Western Sahara? So uh, the Western Sahara is uh, a southern part of Morocco. It has ethnic Sahrawis in them, uh, which are Amazigh, which is a tribe of Amazigh, basically, who wants independence from Moroccan government. At first, it was actually a Marxist-Leninist movement as well in the very beginning, but today it became a show uh, for like wh- whose dictator is going to win <laughs> over the area. Um, but in general, the idea is that Morocco freed uh, Western Sahara from Spain. Um, this was a move done in 1974 where all Marxist-Leninist organizations have advised against Why? Because they claimed that this is just a way for the government to sell itself back to the people. So because Ilal Amam was actually uh, on the front of this issue, being against the government taking over the Western Sahara, Ilal Amam took very... Um, out of the three organizations I talked about, Ilal Amam was the one that was facing off the government directly, via gangs or, or anything that was... like They used violence. I think this this was the beginning where they started actually to lose popularity among the people because for the people, the Western Sahara was part of Morocco. Ah. Yeah, this is where they started to lose. And I think they have learned from their mistake. And today, well, not Ilal Amman per se, but it, it became a new party called the, the Democratic Way. They also want the Western Sahara to be united to Morocco. But the difference is that they wanted to be united to Morocco as a socialist state, obviously. Ah, okay. So it's kind of would be like China and Hong Kong, where you have one country, two systems, right? Exactly, yep. Interesting. Um, so for people who want to learn more about you, your research, where can they find you? Um, I don't currently have any research. <laughs> well, you have a TikTok, right? Yes, uh, where I talk mostly uh, about um, Marxism. Okay, so where can people find you? Uh, it's called at Sin of Baziz. Spell it out, please. <laughs> Sorry. Yes, S-I-N-O-F-B-A-Z-I-Z. Okay, perfect. Um, and uh, I, I guess, um, thank you so much because I learned so much. Like, I have never had an episode where somebody... There was an episode where we interviewed a Chinese Muslim and he went over about 800 years of history, but you beat him by going over 5,000 years of history. So this <laughs> is one of the most educational episodes ever. So thank you so much. Yeah. Um, it's a pleasure for me to talk about this. Um, I would like to add, if anyone wants to learn about the um, Moroccan Marxist-Leninist movement, they could uh, look for a book called La Lutte des Classes au Maroc, which is Class Struggle in Morocco by Majid Mjid. This is a very interesting book to put yourself on what was happening uh, during uh, the years of lead. That is beautiful. So we will, do- is it in English or a language that I speak, which is not French? <laughs> I think I found it in French, but there is definitely um, an English version. If it's not, uh, I should probably start working on trying to translate it. Absolutely. Please do that. Um, and thank you again. And uh, we should, we're definitely going to have you back again soon. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Music for this show is done by Rectex. You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. 
W R E C K T E C H. And thank you for listening to our show.